We're back with another episode of the Citizens NYC podcast with our host, CEO Rasan Harris. This time, we're diving into a little politics with some help from our guest, Congressman Richie Torres. He represents New York's 15th Congressional District, which covers most of the South Bronx. This 34-year-old is not your typical elected official. Here's why. My story is the story of the Bronx. It's a story of struggle, but it's also one of overcoming. It's also one of hope. You know, I do not come from a political family. I do not have deep pockets. Uh, I admittedly do not even have a college degree. But what I bring to the table is the wisdom of lived experience. Um, I, I know what it's like to face poverty and inequality, uh, to face housing insecurity and food insecurity, to face racism and colorism and homophobia. Uh, and so I govern from a place of lived experience. Um, I spent almost all my life in the Bronx in poverty, uh, raised by a powerful mother who raised three children on minimum wage, which in the 1990s was a mere $4.25. And the single most formative experience of my life was growing up in public housing, uh, which in New York City has been so savagely underfunded that it has a capital need of $40 billion in counting. Uh, and so I found myself growing up in conditions of mold and mildew, leaks and lead without consistent air conditioning in the summer or consistent heat and hot water in the winter. And I often tell people my life is something of a metaphor because I grew up right across the street from Trump golf course. And as the golf course was undergoing construction, it unleashed a skunk infestation. So I often tell people I've been smelling the stench of Donald Trump well before he became president. Um, but the reason I share that story is as the conditions in my home were getting worse, uh, the government had invested more than $100 million to construct a golf course ultimately named after Donald Trump. And I remember asking myself at the time, what does it say about our society that we're willing to put more money into a golf course than into the homes of poor people of color in public housing? And so the experience of housing inequality in the shadow of Trump golf course is what inspired me to get my start as a housing organizer. Uh, and then eventually at age 24, I took the leap of faith and ran for public office. I spent a whole year doing nothing but knocking on doors and going to people's homes and listening to their stories and connecting with them on a personal level. And against all odds, I won my first campaign on the strength of door-to-door, face-to-face campaign. I became the first openly LGBTQ elected official from the Bronx in 2013. What's remarkable is that seven years before then, I was at the lowest point in my life. I had dropped out of college, found myself struggling with depression, abusing substances. I lost my best friend to a fatal opioid overdose. There were moments when I thought of taking my own life because I felt as if the world around me had collapsed. And so I never thought in my wildest dreams that seven years later, I would become the youngest elected official in America's largest city. And today I would be here with you as a United States Congressman. What a, a testimony, what a witness uh, of a story. Um, you know, I'm sitting back and taking it in. Um, you said a lot of heavy terms that some folks might not completely understand, but they really resonate. So when you talk about 
homophobia, you talk about sexism, racism, and colorism, you're, you're talking about challenges and barriers that people have. Can you like talk to me a little bit about like what are the struggles that people face due to those those systems or those those concepts? Well, you can think about racism in two senses, right? You can think of it as a subjective phenomenon, or you can think of it as an objective phenomenon, right? You can think of it in terms of intent of individuals, or you can think of it in terms of the impact of institutions. As a policymaker, I focus on the latter, right? It's like it is a greater concern to me that the criminal justice system systemically discriminates against people of color than it is that my neighbor might be racist, right? I, I think institutional racism, systemic racism, uh, presents a far greater challenge to the opportunities available to communities of color. For me, an event like COVID-19 revealed the deepest inequalities in our society, right? Um, it, it was a distillation of systemic racism. And one of those inequalities was the digital divide. Right. During COVID, when we had to make the transition from in-person instruction to remote learning, it became glaringly obvious that not every child had access to the Internet. Not every child had an electronic device at home. And so we saw the digital divide during COVID deprive students of their fundamental rights to an education. And I worry deeply that the loss of learning brought on by COVID will have long and lasting consequences that will endure long after the pandemic is gone. Um, and those consequences disproportionately affect the lowest income communities of color. Right? You know, it's often said when, when, when America sneezes, communities of color have the flu. That is such um, helpful context and also talks to some of the things that Citizens Committee does in our neighborhood business program, we recognize that during the pandemic, women, people of color, immigrants weren't getting the federal assistance through the PPP program as their white, male, you know, quote unquote, uh, long term Americans were getting. And so we made an intentional priority. And as we screened the applications that we got for assistance that we're providing to really lift up people of color, to lift up women and lift up immigrant-led um, businesses to make sure that they got a fair shot at getting assistance in that critical moment. You know, communities of color already had the flu, but ultimately everyone is going in the wrong direction. So how do you make sure that systems work so we all can go in the right direction and we all can get opportunity? The example of PPP illustrates the distinction between racial equality and racial equity. Right? If, if you create a neutral PPP program uh, and treat everyone the same, then you're advancing the principle of, of racial equality. But what you often find is is white established businesses that have connections to big banks will have a much easier time accessing those PPP loans than small black and brown businesses. Uh, and so that demonstrates the limits of racial neutrality or racial equality of treating people the same. 
Uh, I'm in favor of racial equity. I'm in favor of treating people not the same, but based on need. Right? Communities of color have greater need, and those needs should factor into public policy. Uh, and so when crafting programs like PPP, there should be set-asides for black and brown businesses. There has to be an intentional effort to prioritize diversity and racial inclusion, or else if you keep it neutral, uh, it, the system will naturally favor uh, those with the most power and privilege, which tends to be white people and white businesses. What you said makes me also think about the fact that folks say, well, I, I love all people, I like all people, certain things are just happening in the way that I don't want them to happen because systems are in place. Systems persist because folks aren't necessarily intentionally in dismantling them and, and creating new opportunities. In talking about opportunities and individual identities, uh, something happened recently which was shocking for many folks and disparately affects a certain population, which is the reversal of Roe versus Wade. Um, women and women's health was on the Supreme Court docket and would love to hear, you know, what do you feel about the decision and, and, and are you worried about um, the needs of women and their, their right to autonomy being taken away by this decision? And what do you think that means for the larger you know, access to rights for all people? The decision reversing Roe versus Wade is a shock to the conscience of most Americans. It's a shock to the system. You know, I never thought I would live in an America where a woman in 2022 would have less control over her own body and her own destiny than she would have had in 1973. So we're witnessing the Supreme Court setting the clock back more than half a century. Um, the decision in the, in the Dobbs case, in the abortion case, is one of the most dangerous decisions in the history of the Supreme Court. It is so dangerous that it will open the door to the criminalization of abortion. It will open the door to blanket bans on abortion, even in cases of rape and incest, even in cases where a woman's health is at risk. Uh, former Vice President Mike Pence has called for a national ban on abortion. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas has said that the Supreme Court should apply the logic of the court's decision to overturn a whole host of cases protecting the rights of privacy and the right to use contraception and the right to sexual intimacy between same-sex couples and the right to marriage equality. Uh, so make no mistake, the, the case is not only about abortion. It's about our privacy and equality and intimacy. It's about the most important aspects of our lives. Uh, the decision will have consequences that will reverberate well beyond Roe versus Wade. It will have implications for the privacy of every American. Uh, and it's, it's terrifying. And the midterm elections in November, um, and I know you cannot comment, but I will. Uh, the midterm elections in November will take on new urgency because there will be a concerted effort by a particular political party to impose a national ban on abortion, which would directly affect us here in New York City. Yeah, specifically, what would the implications of a national ban on abortions have on New York City based on the way you know your district and the way you know New York City? Well, first, the national ban would not reduce the number of abortions. It would reduce the number of safe and legal abortions. Um, it would effectively 
the federal government has a, would have the power to compel women, even in, in blue states, to carry a pregnancy to term, uh, regardless of their resources, right? There are people who cannot afford to have children, who would be forced to do so by a national ban. Um, so it's going to create, it would create far more instability in our society. But, but it will strip women of their equality and privacy. Like if, if you cannot, if the government can coerce you into childbirth, then you are no longer in control of your own life and your own future. You become nothing more than the property of the state. Like that's the evil of any decision that denies a woman the right to choose. Margaret Atwood said that forced childbirth is slavery. I agree with her. It's a form of enslavement. Those are really powerful words and powerful imagery. Um, and you you hinted that the decision also has implications for other rights. So specifically, what are the potential implications for LGBTQ rights based off of the same logic that was made for uh, Roe versus Wade? Or not Roe versus Wade, but so the, gonna, the rolling back of Roe versus Wade. So I'm, I'm going to get technical here uh, because I feel like the details matter. Uh, so one of the most important doctrines in law is substantive due process. Uh, which is based in the 14th Amendment, the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment. And Justice Thomas is on a crusade against substantive due process, which holds that there are fundamental rights that might not be specifically enumerated in, but are nonetheless protected by the Constitution. These rights include the right to privacy, the right to use contraception, the right to live with your own family, uh, the right to interracial marriage, the right to same-sex marriage, the right to sexual intimacy. There's a recognition that there are some rights that are so fundamental that those rights should not be left to the ballot box, but should be protected by the Constitution. Justice Thomas has publicly called on the Supreme Court to overturn all the substance to due process cases, Griswold versus Connecticut, which protects the right to privacy and the right to use contraception, Lawrence versus Texas, which protects the right to sexual intimacy, particularly between same-sex couples, and Obergefell versus Hodges, which affirmed marriage equality. Um, Justice Thomas has declared war on all those rights and the doctrine of substantive due process upon which those rights depend. Um, but here's the irony. Justice Thomas is in an interracial marriage. His marriage is made possible by the doctrine of substantive due process. One of the foundations for the Supreme Court's decision in Loving versus Virginia is substantive due process, which holds that you have a right to marry whomever you want, including someone of, the diff of a different race. Uh, and he curiously neglected to mention that case in his concurrence, um, because that hits too close to home. So it's like substantive due process for me, but not for thee. That's uh... absolutely uh, it's so interesting where we exercise some of our judgments 
and where we uh, look away or don't necessarily apply. Um, because it's, it's, I think it's so much easier to be in other people's business than it is to deal with our own and the issues that 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 that, that hit to us. And I guess that, to a certain extent, has and to I can, be and, a and little I, bit and I of privilege. I also want to make a, you know, the I encourage people to read these cases because the actual substance of these court, court cases is much worse than the headlines. You know, in his abortion opinion, Justice Alito cites English lawmakers dating to medieval England, 13th century, and 17th century English lawmakers during the witch trials. Like one of the lawmakers he cites said that husbands could never be prosecuted for raping their wives. Uh, and one of the lawmakers he cites was known to sentence women to death as witches. Uh, why are we looking to medieval thinkers for guidance on how to interpret privacy in the 21st century. It's insanity. It's insanity. That's the only word I could use to describe it. So in the midst of insanity, we want to give people hope. And Citizens Committee brings people together, especially those in low-income communities, to improve their neighborhood. What advice would you have for the average person on the street to make sure that they're taking action to secure their rights, or they're creating an environment where their rights would be protected? We cannot afford to be complacent. We have no choice but to be civically and politically engaged because the future of the country depends on it. You know, after the Civil War, right, we saw the failure of Reconstruction at the hands of a system of racial terrorism known as Jim Crow. Um, and what ultimately broke the grip of the original Jim Crow was grassroots mobilization, was the sheer power of the civil rights movement, which in my mind led to Brown versus Board of Education, which struck down school segregation. It led to the Civil Rights Act. It led to the Voting Rights Act. Uh, only grassroots mobilization is powerful enough to overcome the Supreme Court as a reactionary force. You know, our country you know, the Supreme Court has a long and ugly history as a reactionary institution. Uh, the court gave us Dred Scott, which upheld slavery, Plessy versus Ferguson, which upheld Jim Crow, and uh, Kuramatsu, which upheld the detention of Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, but what ultimately overcame those reactionary forces was a strong ground game, civic engagement, grassroots mobilization. That's the playbook that we have to apply in our present crisis. Uh, you know, we can win this, but we have to fight. You know, Dr. King once said that the long arc of history bends toward justice, but it's not going to bend on its own. We've got to bend it. And we bend it by, by remaining engaged and by fighting. What does fighting look like? Does it look like voting? Does it look like having conversations? Could you give our listeners a, a picture of what a fight looks like? I think voting is the beginning, right? It's, it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition for civic engagement. But it's supporting organizations like yours, right? It's, it's lobbying your elected officials and letting them know that this issue matters to you. You know, it's supporting organizations that advance causes that matter to you. It's attending protests. 
and demonstrations and rallies. Um, uh, it's, it's participating in lo local civic associations and becoming leaders in your community. It's, sometimes it means running for office yourself or supporting candidates you believe in. Um, th th there are multiple avenues of civic engagement, and I would encourage people to exhaust each and every one of those avenues because it is critical now more than ever. Our rights are at stake. And I want to add that being civically engaged on issues uh, is not about a party. It's really about trying to exercise your you know, First Amendment right to to express yourself. It's about coming together, regardless of where people are, but to trying to create hopefully a common good for for all people, so all folks can thrive. And I think, interestingly enough, uh, one of our board members, Susan Coleman. Um, famously uh, had a debate with uh, the Republican Party on the issue of a woman's right to choose um, decades ago. Um, and you know, her partnership with us as Citizens Committee and others have come across um, different, uh, what do you call them, political stripes or, or different um, belief systems to really try to create opportunity for all people so that we all can hopefully get to a better place. But talking about getting to a better place, and, and you were vulnerable earlier talking about a, a, a period when you had, um, you struggled with uh, mental health and feeling well. Um, how, does, how do folks get off feeling depressed um, and, and come off of you know, very tough times? We've been through a pandemic. We've been through so many different decisions that, and, and, and episodes that knock at folks' self-esteem and, 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 and at their, their, their opinions towards positivity, you know, what would you advise folks of how to get up off the mat um, and, 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 and get into a fight? Look, if you're struggling with mental illness, uh, whether it be uh, depression or anxiety, um, I encourage people to seek treatment um, in the form of psychotherapy or medication or a combination of both. Um, you know, I take an antidepressant every day. And I feel no shame in admitting it because it enables me to be the best version of myself, to be a productive public servant. And I honestly would not be alive today, let alone a member of Congress, were it not for the power of mental health care. Um, so I encourage people to care for themselves. Uh, be, be kind to yourself. And, uh, your mental health is too critical to be ignored. Um, it's, uh, you know, and as a public figure, I've made a point of telling my story in the hopes of breaking the stigma and shame and silence that too often surrounds the subject of mental health. Um, I hope that I can inspire people to see themselves and their struggles in, in my own life. That is so powerful. Um, and during the pandemic, I know so many people struggled with um, their mental health, and a lot of us went through through dark times. So thank you for your sharing your story and being open so that it gives all of us encouragement that everything is possible by, I think, taking care of ourselves. And if we take care of ourselves, then we're ready for any steps that are uh, before us. But I think together, that's how we get to where we need to be um, and hopefully improving New York City improving our country and hopefully improving the world. Um, I'm blown away 
by uh, your thoughtfulness, um, by your vulnerability, and uh, representing New York City on a national level and making sure that, that we have a voice. So thank you so much for that. Are there any um, closing thoughts that you want to leave people with as we think about you know, the range of our conversation and, and, and what are we stepping into the, the future of New York City, the future of our country um, as we go into the rest of this year? Well, when I entered Congress, I was immediately thrown into turmoil. Um, I was sworn in on January 3rd. And on my third day as a member of Congress, I lived through the insurrection. And, and then I had to vote to impeach an outgoing president. Um, and, and we, you know, for me, the January 6th was not simply an assault on a physical structure, it was an assault on the idea of America as a multiracial, multi-ethnic, LGBTQ inclusive democracy. It was a reaction against the changing complexion of our country. Um, but then a few weeks later, I'm at the inauguration and I see the vice president, the first woman, the first African-American, the first Asian-American, being sworn in by the first Latina on the United States Supreme Court, who, by the way, is from the Bronx. And that image served as a reminder that the future of our country does not belong to fear, it belongs to hope. It does not belong to white supremacy. It belongs to multiracial democracy. So the future belongs to us. And we need to seize it. Citizens NYC would like to thank our funders and supporters that help make our grants possible, including Molly Parnas Livingston Foundation, Wells Fargo, Booth Ferris Foundation, TD Bank, National Grid Foundation, and all of our generous donors. It's because of you that we're able to do our work. If you would like to contribute, see a complete list of our donors, or learn more, visit us at citizensnyc.org.